Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. We're on chapter two of Shmod Exodus, verse five. We spent a lot of time talking um, about the verse, but had not yet read the Rashi's. And we're going to start with this, with the, uh, with the Sforno. Let's remind ourselves what the verse is, the story that we all know so well and are now getting to review slowly and deliberately. Batered bat paro, the daughter of Pharaoh went down, yaredet, lechotz al hayor. I won't go back through all the stuff we discussed last time, but something like she bathed upon the river, or as Rashi said, she went down to the river to bathe. V'na'aroteha, her girls, her maidens, halchot al yad hayor, are walking next to, by the hand of the river, she, we assume the she in this situation is Baparo, saw the little vessel in which Moshe had been placed, who's not yet Moshe, within the reeds. This is the key question how to translate. Let's just go the simplest way. She dispatched a maidservant, and she took it. Okay, and I know that if you remember last week, there are a lot of different ways of translating that, but that's that's a that's a that's a clean way of translating it, even if it's not the only way to translate it. Okay, so um, we were going to start with Sforno. Larry, was this? Did, did you want us to start with Sforno? Remind me. That was that was you, because we, we actually did the Rashi, but you said you wanted to start with the Sforno today. We did we did all of the Rashi's. On that, we did the Rashi on Et Amata. We yes. might not did. into the Rashi on Amata. Yeah, we might not have done that one. Okay. So, what did I want us to look at in this forno? The question was, where where was the, the princess uh, at that time? Was she actually down near the river, or was she elsewhere? Mm-hmm. And what fascinated me was that where Sephorno sees her as being and the reason why she is where she is. Uh-huh. So, Marshall, why don't you read that Sephorno? Not everyone has it in front of them, although if everyone has a computer, if you get onto Safari and uh, find this verse and click on this verse and click on commentary, the Sephorno will be there, even if you don't have it in front of your book. But why don't you read that Sephorno um, to get us started, Marshall? Okay, Lirchot al Hayaor to bathe on the river, Bechadar shall Melech in the uh, room of the king, Shehayasamuch Layaor, which was close to the river, Umabitbo, and it looks upon it, Ki Omnam Kivodat Bata Melech Pnima, for surely the honor of the, of the daughter of the king is inside. Without doubt, she did not go out to the river itself. So what do you make of that, Marshall, or anyone else? What's, what's the first thing that Sforna was saying about the location of the daughter of Pharaoh? What was she, what was she not doing? She was not, she was not going down to the river to take the, the little vessel, but she was someone else to go. Right. So first thing Sforna says is, you should imagine that Pharaoh's daughter was out just like bathing in public. Right? No, she she had some kind of a um, 
an infinity pool, as it were, in her in her in her palace, where she could be in her own pool, as it were, and she could. It's as if she was bathing in 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 the Nile. She had a beautiful view to it, but it would not have been appropriate for the daughter of Pharaoh, according to Sforno, to just be out bathing. So that's the first thing he he says. Go ahead. Okay, lachain lo shalcha, or I'm sorry, lo shilcha achat mehen. Therefore, she did not send forth one of them, shlohayu, as sham ima, who were not there with her. So at least one of you last week was saying that the narateh hochot is not that her maidens were walking is not to set us up for the fact, and therefore she sent one of them but a way of saying whatever the maidens were doing, they were not at the, pl- they were, they were not at the place where the daughter mm-hmm. Pharaoh was, was. They were somewhere else. And that's what Sforno was saying here. The She's inside the building. They're out taking a stroll. And therefore, she doesn't send one of them to go pick up the vessel because they're not with her, according to Sforno. And therefore, how does he translate what Shlachat Amata? And so she sent forth her, um, her, uh, her servant. Right, her maid servant. And keep reading this for now, Ha'ama. Okay. Ha'ama ha-misharetet ha-ota as-lechotz. The servant who was serving her then to, to bathe. So not one of her, like, uh, her, her, not one of her coterie, but particularly the bathing servant is the one that gets sent. And then he adds one more concept. Uh, and therefore it was the, I guess, the desire of, of God it's weird. It's 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 said. It's 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 written weirdly. It's weird. Written in a half smichut. Biratzon Elohei. It should be Elohim, because Elohei is God of. But there's no of to com- to complete the phrase. Okay. All of this, Sforno says, and I wonder if this is like the main engine for his comment is to say that God was directing this entire scene. How do we know? Right. Set up so that she not send achat minaratel one of her like um inside circle right. who are important that she not therefore trust one of her inner circle right. of, of helpers why uh, uh, and therefore perhaps that person who she would have sent would have thrown the baby into the river because they that servant would have known about the decree of Pharaoh that all the boys should have been drowned. Right. Not only known about the decree, but more in that civic population, right? So the way this foreigner is reading it, he's not going to go the Rashi route and point out that Amak can also mean hand. He's going to say, Bat Paro had um, Amot, I guess that's the plural of Amot. He had uh, maid servants, and he had Narot. She had Narot. She had friends. She had girlfriends. She had... You know, princesses or sub-princesses or people that she would go hang out with. All they were doing, they were taking a stroll by the river. She was in her chamber being attended to. And had because she sent another servant, someone who might more, li- more likely to be someone who has mercy on someone being oppressed by the, um, by the pharaoh, 
That's the person, according to Sporn, who go gets Moshe, not one of Pharaoh's daughter's friends who were from the elite Pharaonic class and who might not have had mercy. And it's not that she was thinking that. All this is the Holy One. The Holy One said, what, once the Holy One sees the mother of Moshe, who's about to be named, put the baby in the river, the Holy One sets it up that the way this is going to be found is the, be, is the way that's going to most likely create the situation where there's mercy in that moment and not fury, mercy and not destruction. Because you have to imagine, or you could imagine, that those, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of relevance in some ways in this conversation. Those who are most, who are the, the, the beneficiaries of the, um, of, of, the, of the darkness and brokenness and the venality of a particular society are the ones who are least likely to, um, to push against it, right? So her girlfriends are not going to be the ones who are going to push against her father's decrees. But a servant... Um, who understands what it's like to be under the thumb of this guy might be more willing to. You could obviously argue it in the opposite way sociologically, that a servant who has no power is less likely to uh, take that risk. This is the way Sporno is reading it. So it's also a bit of a, it's, it's a bit of highlighting the Holy One's presence in the story and making a social commentary on who is likely and who is not likely to push against a Pharaonic decree. Okay. Um, questions or thoughts on that? Rick? And then in Alan. Uh, hi. Um, but that takes away from the daughter any kind of uh, any ca- uh, character, and then she's the one that raises him in, in the household. So um, I would rather be her character instead of the character of the, uh, the maidservant. I will tell Sforno that when I see him. Okay. Um, right. This D um, t- takes away the agency of Bat Perot, makes her an instrument of God's uh, plan rather than our seeing kind of a chink in the armor of the of Pharaoh's family, suggesting there was someone in the family who pushed against what Pharaoh wanted to do. Correct. It, it's a, it's a, it's decidedly reading it in that direction, and one does not have to read it that way. Alan and then Barry. Unmute. Okay. There is. Uh, first, it's very nice being back here. I've missed the last few sessions, and I really missed it, but. And I don't know if we talked about this after not, but there is uh, there's a midrash that says that Batfaro is going down to the Nile in order to convert to Judaism. And so when you talk about this being part of God's plan, that would be consistent with that rabbinic midrash. I don't know the source of that. I just somewhere that is. If you can, if you know what I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know to what I am referring. I'm actually not. I'm not familiar with that midrash. That that that, that her descent to the river was to convert to be a Hebrew. Yes, that's why she became Batya, the daughter of God. Uh, that was her name. It's a lovely, oh. fanciful, anachronistic midrash. Um, but I'm, not, I'm not aware of it. Interesting. Huh. You taught me something new. Um, I'm pleased. Uh, Barry. So. Um... Uh, we no one knows yet what's in this basket. Uh, all the uh, either Pharaoh's daughter or the servant sees is a teva in the water. It's it's covered over. So th- there's no time yet. It's not the time yet to have mercy. We don't know what the object is. 
Right. The, 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 the finding of it is by happenstance. The reaction to it. Uh, is uh, not- I wouldn't say happenstance. I'm going to go along with you. Yes, this is a setup. It's a, it's a setup, but they, they don't know yet what it is. It's going to be a surprise. And, and then, then mercy comes in. Correct. Correct. Okay. Now let's go to the uh, Rashi um, on that verse, or at least the Rashi on the last part of the verse. So Marshall, since you were talking, you were reading, why don't you pick up that last Rashi, right? Because I think we had read up until the middle of the Rashi in that verse, the words et amata, her handmaiden, maybe what it means. And, you know, when we're, we spent so much time in this verse already, sometimes it's, it's, I want you to, both remember what we discussed and forget so that um, you don't have to feel like you're weaving every commentary into what Rashi is about to say. So for the moment, discard as you're trying to understand Rashi, what Sforno said, and discard as you're trying to understand Rashi, the different possibilities, what you think the verse could mean, so we can make sense of Rashi's comment, and then we can figure out which one speaks to us the most. So Marshall, uh, you got to unmute again, et amata. Okay. Got it. Okay. Uh, et, um, uh, et amata. Uh, we notice there's a mapik in the uh, the last letter in the hey. Et shivchata. Uh, that is means her handmaid. Right. So the first thing Rashi does is tell you before he's about to go into a midrash. What I really think this word means is a synonym for for handmaiden. Right. This, I'm about to tell you something interesting. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm not going to withhold it from you, but what I think it, this word means is he, she sent her handmaiden. Okay. Verabotenu. Okay. Verabotenu dorshu, but the rabbis, however, explained it, that the word amata is lashon yad. Such is the language of the, the word hand. Okay, pause there, and because not everyone is familiar, Marshall, explain how amata, we hinted at it last week, can can potentially mean uh, hand. Well, this was what Barrett said uh, last week, where the word ama can have two meanings. One is ama as a maidservant, and the second is ama as as a hand, like a hand breadth or so. Right, and it can all. It, it's also the name of one of the fingers on the hand. Right in Hebrew, um, every finger on the hand has a different name. Agudal, uh, zeret, kmitza. I think is ama the middle one or the second one. I always forget. Barrett will, will let us know. Um, but one of the fingers is also, I think it's the middle one, is, is, the, is, the, is the ama. Um, and uh, so, so there's definitely a connection between the word ama and the limb of the hand. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, but according to the grammar of the Holy Tongue, Hayalo lehinaked amata digusha. But according to the uh, this grammar, it should have been there should have been a dagesh in the uh, uh, well. I guess it says that the mem should have been have a dagesh in it. Right. It should have had a dagesh in it. If what? Um, The word, the, the two Hebrew words um, for the, ama, and this is, um, a, a, even though I love 
um, Hebrew grammar and dikduk and the pointing of, of letters, I would not have known this, and I should not point it out, that had the word been amata, her hand, not amata, her handmaiden, the mem of amata would have had a dagesh, it would have a dot in it, suggesting actually that um, that somewhere deep in the construction of the word, it was like two, two, two mems there, amata, so he's basically saying the rabbis are not, are creative and are and are creative going past grammar. And the rabbis knew that amata would have had to be the way it was read had it been her hand, not her handmaiden. But still, they made the following midrash for him. And they explained it at amata. That is the word amata. Since that's a negation, it means et yada, it means her hand. Uh, Vinish Tarbiva Amata Amot Harbe. And uh, that means her hands, a row of her hands, in, her, her hand increased uh, several cubits, several. Uh, and I guess here the, the, the reason is that so that she could reach the, uh, the Teba. Right. And look at the very concise and wonderful way that Rashi makes that, that comment. Because he's using the word ama in two different ways in the same phrase. amata. So her ama, her hand, extended amot harbet, many hand breaths, right? Uh-huh. So he's using that use of that word as a way of making the comment. And what, what does, the, aside from it being, right, slightly grammatically incorrect because it's not taking into account the negation, the mem, what does this midrash add to the story? Like, wh- wh- why, think of it on, on a sermonic level. Why would the rabbis of Masechet Sota, that Rashi is now quoting, why make this midrash? You don't need to. It goes against grammar a little bit. What are we gaining from the story to imagine, like, a, a cartoonish moment where her hand extends several hand lengths to be able to reach the teva uh, to suggest that had, the, had that not happened, it would, she wouldn't have been able to get that arc. What do we gain from it? Barry, and then Judy. Well, clearly there's something miraculous going on here. Uh, yeah. this, this, this is a miraculous moment, and uh, we're being forced to pay attention to it. Right. We're using a different um, like engine in the verse, it's actually making a similar comment that Sforna was making. Sforna was saying, if you look closely at the difference between the word na'ar and ama. You can see the hand of God in this, in this case, no pun intended, right? Rashi is getting there in a different way. First saying, I don't really think that this Midrash makes that much sense. I'm going to first tell you what I think it really means. But if you want to, if you want to go down the Midrashic rabbit hole, this is the, the rabbis of the Talmud saying, God is present in this moment. Under normal circumstances, this baby would have drowned. Under normal circumstances, the mother's attempt to save it from drowning by the hands of Pharaoh the, the, the ark would have just drifted down the river and the baby would have drowned had it not been for this magical, miraculous arm extension of an ama becoming three amount long, five amount long, and reaching an otherwise unreachable teva. Judy? I, I was, I'm echoing exactly what Barry just said. Hi, Barry. That um, it was miraculous and it's got like the, the beautiful sparkle of God's hand, as you say, behind it. This is the destiny. This is a pivotal moment. So it, it enlarges on its very lovely. 
Yeah. And think about the places, particularly in Moshe's life, where um, the, the, the in profound encounters with God will be supernatural ones, right? The, the a bush not being consumed is in the same category of things that could only happen in a cartoon uh, on some level as at hand, all of a sudden being five hand breaths long, right? And th- these are the moments where, where Moshe, even before he has sentience, gets pulled into God's um, realm, right? And, and, and as an Elmas is an extension of God's miraculous power. Uh, Stevie? Um, just to add to what Rick was saying a minute ago, that this Midrash also, you know, literally extends, right, Paro's role, right? She's, it's not accidental and it's not through this intermediary uh, handmaiden. It's like she really wanted to, to, you know, save this child. So she's right. Great. And in that way, very different than Sforno, right? Similar to Sforno, and it shows that a hand of God, different than Sforno, because Sforno is almost suggesting there's no one in, in, in Pharaoh's family or crew who would have, who would, who would have done this and been present to express the, the, the initial chemla, the initial mercy you're about to see. It was only from someone who was already in the servant class. Rashi is saying, yes, God was involved, but God was involved using Bat Paro as an, as an agent. And she's the one, they're, they're, right? In this, just to reinforce it in case it's not clear, in this reading, there is no servant being sent to the river to get the, the ark. It's actually Bat Paro. Correct. Vered, Matt, Larry, Diane. Did you unmute? Okay. I just want to um, <clears throat> enlarge one little bit on this, uh, putting also Miriam <clears throat> in this scene uh, where she was hiding and watching. I mean, she came by herself to watch, and she was the one that we know will bring them in naked. So all of them, Miriam and Batparo, are part of that special God thing to take care of the baby. Yes. So, And it also hints about the relationship of those two women, Batparo and Miriam, to have on, on the baby. Yes, that. And Sue, I think you're absolutely right. Everyone knows that Elastigirl um, was inspired mostly by French medieval commentaries. I mean, I, I don't even know why you have to say that. I mean, that's just so obvious to everybody. <laughs> but it's, it, is the, it is the image in the mind, right? Of like some cartoon. Just, just I was thinking there was a telephone. There was some cartoon I, I used to watch as a kid that it that had some some person's hand could go farther than than they expect. I forgot what it was called. Uh, Matt and then Diana Larry. Hi. Uh, so all this stuff is very interesting as a sort of intellectual exercise, like um, the, the commentators talking about the number of angels on a pin, and you can tease everything out of it. But it just, to me, it takes away from the strength of the story, which is actually very clear. I mean, I don't see many ambiguities in the story. Mm. And clearly, if you read the whole thing, the mother and her daughter hatched a plan not to throw the, the baby into the river, but to hide it in the reeds. I mean, it says so. The sister waited nearby to see what would happen. And they did it because they knew that Pharaoh's daughter would, would find it. 
uh, to me, that's a very strong story. Well, I mean, yeah. And, 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 and I don't see any ambiguities. I mean, the only ambiguities are us sort of trying to impose different languages. We're trying to translate this very strong Hebrew statement and find little faults and, and ambiguities, but it's, it's not ambiguous. It's there. I mean, it's like saying Rosh Hashanah is early this year or Rosh Hashanah is late this, this year. It's not. Rosh Hashanah comes on time. And this right. story speaks for itself very strongly, I think. Right. Listen, I, I, I think you're right. One could say that on some level on every, in, in every Midrashic turn in the tradition. Right. In this case, Rashi agrees with you because, because if Rashi didn't agree with you, he wouldn't have first said, Shifchata. He just would have jumped right into the story. He first says, I know that you know that I know that you know that the verse makes sense. She sent, she dispatched her handmaiden and then we're not focused on, on miracles or, or who is doing what. We're focused on, on the, on the other scene that you reminded us of, which is the agency of, of Yochebed and Miriam. But, but Rashi also wants us to, to, um, to dive into this, this whole simultaneously and we don't have to. Right, like midrash is optional, right? And and sometimes the pshat is 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 as good as, if not better than, the midrash. And certainly sometimes the pshat, as we, as it as it kind of settles in our consciousness, is more satisfying as 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 a as a story, as a as a as a, as, a, as, a, as a lesson from the text than what the rabbis came up with. And and since listen, listen. Since we, I don't think, I don't, or I think we don't, I think that we don't think that the rabbis of the Midrashic tradition were, were, um, were divine figures, right? We imagine them to be lovers of the text and the tradition, having tremendous mastery over it, trying to squeeze meaning out of it. But neither, maybe better than we are by innumerable powers in terms of how much they knew about the tradition they were holding in their hands, but they weren't better thinkers, they weren't better storytellers. They weren't better, better narrative creators. And so what, what they pull out of it is interesting for us to go through as we understand our community's spiritual and intellectual history, but not necessarily because they're better midrash writers or pshat um, derivers than we are. And I think it's important to be reminded of that as you just did. So thank you for that, Matt. Um, Larry Diane. So, so I want to go back to hands because actually I think that the image of protective hand, in this case, a protective hand reaching out to rescue Moshe sort of links with the notion of, of hands as protectors. And we have, um, the, the blessing of the, of the Kohanim, which is done with hands. And we have the symbol of a Hamza, which is, Hands, a hand protecting against the evil eye. Um, it was one more. Um, I can't think of right now. But but anyway, this, it's 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 kind of a neat little trick to link to link the two together. I think. Yes, um, and the notion that um, um, Yad is going to be very significant uh, throughout the story of 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 not only the Israelites' descent into slavery, but their emergence from slavery. Yad, Yad Paro and Yad Hashem are going to be very much there. Correct. Can I just say one thing? Yes. Is, it, not, not to summarize what you have already said. This verse 
could have stood, like Matt said, could stand on its own. And we then also can do lots of, of, of commentaries on it and, mid, and have Midrashim. When we get to the next verse, it's an example of a verse which screams out for explanation. And in fact, requires us to do, to, to do that work. Yeah. And remember the first thing that we said about the verse before we jumped into the meaning of it was how simple and, and, but oddly simple the truck is. It's almost, right. almost as if the truck is saying, um, don't, don't linger on this verse. This verse makes sense. It makes sense in the words. It makes sense musically. It's, ju- it's just, it's just a simple verse. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to leave it at that. Right, but the, it's 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 a classic. And the words make sense, and as Matt pointed out, there's you you could walk away from this verse not having any meaningful questions about it. Right? You could also walk away from the verse having lots of meaningful questions that um, that we need to get you need to get resolved, and that's and that's one of the you know depending on which side of the Arthur Stern. Um, you're on, it's a wonderful or frustrating or both aspect of the Midrashic approach to text. Right? Um, Barry, Rick, Allen. So uh, talking about the, uh, the, the, the miracle of the hand, God's participation in the hand, uh, I'm jumping ahead to the story. Um, I've always wondered, when Moshe struck the Egyptian, mm-hmm. what, what what kind of power, with one strike, did he kill the Egyptian? Now I'm getting to understand that. Great. Thank you. Uh, Rick? Yeah, hi. Um, again, on the trope, it, it is almost a full set, but you do have that missing mercha before the Sof Pasuk, where... There's something missing there. There could have been another word, and um, um, it, it, I, I thought it was like the the thought process of oh, trying to make a difference and 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 uh, and taking the basket out instead of just letting it go uh, to to have the motivation to uh, to uh, to feel for it that kind of thing. Great, great. Um, so it's, we're, we're drashing not only truck that's there, but truck that's not there. Right. Alan, but let's, this will be the last comment before we go to the next verse. Okay. Um, I just, the, the, you mentioned it, that this could be interpreted as not being, um, Pharaoh's daughter's hand servant, uh, hand servant, but it was actually her herself who went down there. And, I'm not clear when I when I read the text. I'm not sure on what basis. And you mentioned that there was an interpretation that would make it that it was Pharaoh's daughter herself that was there. Can you repeat that? I didn't quite get that. Yes. If we if we take Rashi's um, um, sorry, if we take Rashi's com- Rashi's second comment as the right way or a right way to read the verse. Then the last half of the verse, Vatere et hateva betochasuf, she saw the ark and the she here, the daughter of Pharaoh, within the reeds, Vatishlach et amata, she extended her hand, not uh. and her servant, Vatikacha, and she took it. So the whole scene then has, her, still has her na'arot, her friends, her, her maidens, walking elsewhere 
where as she and only she sees the ark, she and only she extends her hand, she and only see she is the one who has the reaction in the next verse. If we take yada, amata to mean yada and not amata to mean her servant. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we do the next verse, now that everyone who I think is going to be here today is here, a public service announcement that next week, um, I will not be teaching the class. I know we haven't had a, a week break um, from this class really in, in, since the beginning of COVID, and it's been such a great um, anchor for me, and I hope for you too. I cannot uh, teach the class next Wednesday at 8.30. Um, Leonard, at some point in the day today, if you want to uh, share whether or not you're interested in, in going to um, where you've been teaching from the text, that's great. But um, we'll discuss that at the end, but I wanted you to know that I will not be teaching one week from today at 30. Okay. Uh, let's go to verse number six. Uh, Andrew, do you want to read for us? Sure. Vativtach, vatirehu et hayeled. She opened it and saw the child. Mihine na'ar And behold, the child was crying. Vatachmol alav. Uh, she took pity, Vatomer mi yalde She said, this must be a Hebrew child. Good. Okay. So I'm interested um, to go back to Larry and ask you, Larry, to start off with the question of what are the questions on the verse, because you seem to say that this verse is screaming out for interpretation so name the problems or issues in the verse that you think say that okay so to do that i have to sort of retranslate at least in a literal way okay so she she opened <clears throat> and she saw it or saw him then i have to use a translation for a preposition which is almost impossible at the child right she it's- saw it at the child there's a redundancy there between Tira Ehu, which means she saw it, she saw him. What did she see? Unclear. But then it says, Et Hayeled, the Yeled. And then it says, so that, that has to be explained why we have the, 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 the preposition with the direct object when we've already got the direct object in the verb. Correct. But then we've got, Vihine, and behold, Nar Bocheh. A child, okay, not just a child, a na'ar. So a na'ar, I'm not an expert in Hebrew, and certainly not biblical Hebrew, but a na'ar is a youth, not a baby. So she saw the child, and then she saw a youth. It's not the youth. It's not that the youth was crying. A youth is crying. Are you so, intentionally or unintentionally quoting my cousin Vinny here? Which is that? Two youths. A youth, yeah. So, the, so those two things for me, need to be explained. Then, after the Etnachta, we've got the Tachmol Lav. So, um, she, she has mercy or compassion on it. And then she says, so what does she say? She doesn't say this is a Hebrew child. She says, from the children of the Hebrew, this is. Why doesn't she just say, this is a Hebrew child? Why does she say it's coming from um, the children of the Hebrews? Now, I know that some of the commentators deal with some of those issues, but to me, the point I wanted to make before is, unlike the previous pasuk, and this one, if you don't answer these questions, you're ignoring the language. 
you're just reading the Hebrew, the English translation, which tries to gloss over what this what this pasuk is, is screaming at us, or screaming at Rashi and everybody else to explain. Good. Great, Larry. Really, a precise read of those three problems or issues in the verse. Rashi is is troubled by at least two of them. We don't know if he's troubled by the third one. He doesn't comment on it, right? So just to just to re, just to repeat, there's a double direct object because in Hebrew you can have a direct object built into a verb. Vatirehu already has the direct object him in the word. Therefore, et hayelad is redundant. And yes, in biblical Hebrew, right? Yosef was 17 years old. The hunar at at bnei Yaakov, right? He was a he was playing like a naar, like a like a young lad, right? So, is this a infant, or is this um, uh, is this a naar? And is it possible that there's another thing that is here that is crying? And then the question of why it doesn't say vatomer, something like um, uh, yeled ivrize. Right. What is the significance of saying it's from the Hebrew children as opposed to saying it is a Hebrew child? I'll just read you Everett Fox's translation, who pays attention to some of this. And then we can see if there are other people who want to raise problems on the verse before we go into the answers. Um, she opened and then he puts in interesting parentheses it. She opened it, which is not there. And saw him, comma, the child. Here comma, a boy weeping, exclamation point. He glosses over the na'ar point. He, he doesn't translate in a way that suggests that na'ar is any weird way of referring to the baby. She pitied him, and she said, one of the Hebrews' children is this. So he translates that last phrase in the way that invites the very question you asked, Larry, because right? he translated it in a clunky way because it's written in a somewhat clunky way. Okay. Um, others want to um, comment on either Larry's comments or make their own comments on the verse before we look at Rashi. Rick. Hi. Okay, so the trope on Vatomer, um, she doesn't have to say anything at all. She can just see the baby and and take it. Uh, who is she talking to? Why does she have to even say anything? So, um, say about what that trope is. I'm sorry? And so oh, the, the trope, the Zakef... Um, um, Zakef Gadol, it, it just, uh, it, it brings, um, drama to the moment that she's speaking, that, that she's, she's saying. And, um, uh, then, um, if she kept it quiet, then there wouldn't be any issue, but she's saying it out loud. So somebody's going to hear her say that. And, and now she's got to cover up somehow. Right. Particularly given what we said about the trup in the previous verse, where it's an almost completely boring verse, this is the first trup in a in two verses that is anything but the da 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 da. And the last interruption of that music was the last trup comment you made two verses ago, Rick, on le dea, le dea. No, yeah. This is what 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 Miriam is 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 standing on the side in order to know, to figure out, to anticipate what's going to happen. And now we have Vahatomer. So the two women in the scene who are significant are attached musically. Right? Yeah. So Miriam gets a gadol yeah. and Vaparo gets a gadol. Right? Norm and then Barry? I have the feeling that the reason it uses this strange description that he's a child of the Hebrews rather than saying he is a Hebrew child is that he had not been circumcised. He's not with a 
with his family. And for this reason, they realize, yes, it, it seems obvious from the circumstances, he's probably a child of Hebrews, but he is not yet a Hebrew. He's not yet a Hebrew because he's, he's uncircumcised? Yes, he hasn't had his bris yet. Until he gets a bris or a name, he really isn't yet. They, they, in many languages, um, the act of circumcision was called, was something like, you know, to make Jewish, to Judaize. And I think that this reflects that point of view, that the baby is still just a baby until that eighth day. Yeah. I think this is past the eighth day, Norm, because his mother had hidden him. Precisely, she couldn't anymore. Precisely, he did not have a. He had not had a bris. He had not been circumcised, and so somehow he was not yet included in the Jewish people. Uh, great, uh, Barry, Tova, Rebecca, Leonard. I don't buy that at all. So I want to thank uh, Larry first of all for opening this up. Uh, this is really powerful. Uh, deconstructing this. Um, so the 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 it that she sees it could be this um, miraculous light that Rashi already described to us when uh, the birth happened. And, and, and it's so, it, it, it's, it's crying. And then the R, and this is a future tense. It, it, we were told previously that, uh, Pharaoh feared that a, a savior would be born. We don't know who savior, but a savior would be born. And it could be that in this miraculous moment that the Midrash is having this experience with the hand, the power of bringing this in, that uh, she, Pharaoh's daughter, now as a prophetess, foresees what this is. And that's the pity that comes from her on what this is. This yeah. is a, a, a very powerful moment in her life. Her life is changing now. And the notion of double direct object suggests two different things that she sees. And it's not just a, like a stylistic way of saying she saw it. What did she see? The boy is going to be investigated by Rashi, going to come up with a, a different explanation than uh, than what you just shared, Barry, but that double direct object does invite that question. Uh, uh, who, who did I say was next? Tova, Rebecca Leonard, Stevie. Uh, yeah, on the on the final phrase that mialde um, uh, it seems as if she's instead of just saying it's a Hebrew child, she's creating a category. It's of the Hebrew children, the category of Hebrew children. And that suggested to me that what she has in mind, because at that time, a Hebrew child is not just a Hebrew child, they were part of this condemned class, this uh-huh. class that is condemned to death by her father. And so she's recognizing that this is a child of that circumstance, and that going back gives, uh, in my eyes, a meaning to the special trope on Batomer, because she's seen, she's recognized that this is a child that's been condemned to death and she pities the child and that decree, that fate that's been decreed. Lovely. Thank you for that. That's a, that's a, really, that's a really sensitive read of that. Very nice. Uh, Rebecca Leonard, Stevie. So perhaps 
perhaps she's actually saying to herself from the Hebrew children, is, is this one? But she's already thinking that she's going to raise him. So she's not calling him a Hebrew because he's not going to be raised as and identified as a Hebrew. He's going to be an Egyptian. But she's <clears throat> reflecting that he's coming from the Hebrew children. But she doesn't call him a Hebrew. That's great. It's, it's a, that's a cousin of Norm's comment, right? That not that he hasn't yet become a Hebrew, but he's about to, he's about to not be a Hebrew. He'll always have been from the Hebrew children, but I'm going to raise him as a non, as a non-Hebrew. Wonderful. And that all, and that of course, that presages the moment that I think Bear referred to before when Moshe, the, the older person has to first confront wh- which one am I, right? Am I, Am I with a taskmaster or the one who's being beaten, right? So this is almost suggesting that, that Pharaoh's daughter is, is, um, is changing his category. He is from Yaldei Ha'ivrim, but he's not going to be a Yaldei Ha'ivrim. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful read. Thank you, Rebecca. Uh, Stevie Allen Marshall. All right. Um, so on the topic of the double direct object, um, it seems that the simplest, you know, grammatical or whatever understanding would be that, that there's a missing verb, that there's a, that there, you know, was in some manuscript or whatever, or something else that, that fit in between there. Um, but the trope, uh, everyone else is commenting on the trope, I'll comment. The trope actually connects this as one phrase, but um, so you would, so you might want to insert something in there, um, and the trope doesn't allow for that. Great. Right. It's as if they're working hard to make you, uh, to disabuse you of the notion that there's a redundancy in the direct objects. It's, it's one phrase. Right? This might be the Trump way of saying sometimes it's just the way the verse is written, and, and not, every, not every redundancy is as redundant as you think. And I, and, and I think even my way of saying that was rather redundant. Uh, Alan. Yeah. Uh, this is in response to what Norm was saying about not being circumcised. Rashbam, I only have the English translation on the verse, says that she took pity on it because uh, a boy crying, she took pity on it. She took pity on it because it was crying. And because she saw that it was a circumcised boy, she said, this must be a Hebrew child. Right. And so this is the point for Rick to unmute himself and remind us of Cecil B. DeMille's drosh on the verse. Um, in the movie, The Ten Commandments, right, Andrew? There's this cloth that's like black and, right. and red with stripes that, that she recognizes that it's Hebrew cloth making. And that's how she knows that, it's, uh, that he's a Hebrew. She, she doesn't look at his private parts on, in, on the screen, you know? Well, Cecil B. DeMille was never a fan of Rashbam. Um, he was much more, pri- much, much more focused on Rashi than Rashbam. But right, um, it, it, the, the verse does, the, the, the verse does, um, it, it, it answer, well, how should I say it? It leaves open how this woman, whether it's the hand ser- handmaiden or Baparo, knew that he was a Yaldei, a Yaled Ivri, or Mi Ivrim, right? And um, since it doesn't say how, it le- it's open for us to try to imagine what the possible answers are. Um, okay, let's go, Marshall. Or was uh, no Alan? Were you, you were you done, Alan? I'm done. I'm done. Marshall. Um, you know, I love Robert Alter's translations. Um, 
And I'd just like to read it very quickly. Um, uh, let's see. She opened it up and saw the child, and look, it was a lad weeping. And she pitied him and said, quote, um, this is one of the children of the Hebrews. So it seems we have a shift here from the narrator, the narrator speaking, and then suddenly we throw the, the princess back in and show us how, how much she was really involved in it. Yeah, and then you can ask yourself the question, whom is she saying it to? Is this the Torah's way of saying that she said it to herself? Is she announcing it? Is she, is she addressing her, you know, those handmaidens who are walking you know, far away the other side of the river? But it seems to be a, like a quotation mark moment. She actually says it, not just reacting to it as if. Correct. Yeah, like the word batomer sort of reminds me of as if there were batomer laymore that she said saying, quote, Yes. This is a Hebrew child. Correct. It's a, it's a declaration of sorts. Right? Yes. It's, um, it's interesting. I haven't thought about that because there's something that has to be discreet about this because she's about to do something that is pushing against her father's decree. So there's something surreptitious about her behavior, uh, particularly the fact that the child that she's going to bring up in the palace has Hebrew origins and yet she's announcing it, saying it. Hmm. I didn't focus on that before. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Barry, Judy, Larry, Diane, and then we'll see if we can uh, get to um, Rashi on the verse, because we're just talking about the, uh, the verse, not the Rashi yet. Go ahead. I'm deferring to Vera. She's been waving her physical hand, but not her digital hand. Uh, I'm not seeing her on the screen, so I hadn't seen it. Vera? Hi. Thank you, Barry. Okay, um, I'd like to comment about So the word Na'ar is a young, young man, a young boy. And here is a baby crying. But why was the word Na'ar? Why is he crying as a Na'ar, like a boy who is 10, 13 years old. So you want to say it's very simple, like a pshat. He was crying, 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 and his voice got very hoarse. But you can also look at it as if there is something wrong with this crying. Doesn't fit a baby, a very young baby. It's a hint that Moshe, who was from the Levim, will not be able to sing in Beta Mikdash, I mean, in the Mishkan or anywhere, because of he has some voice issues. Or going back to say, you know, he was Kvat Peh, he was Kvat Lashon, he had a problem with his voice. So there's something that you can maybe see from now, that from the very beginning, his voice was different, not fitting a voice of a baby. Wonderful. We, we, we connected the how Yad is going to play a part in the story, and now you're connecting Cole, particularly Moshe's voice. And, I, and it's also, it's, it's, it's just so why it's wonderful to study Torah as a group, because I, I could have lived 50 lifetimes and not made that association, Barrett. So thank you for that. That, that later on, the, the extent to which Moshe is able to use his voice normally is a significant 
um, part of the narrative. And here, his voice is is different as it should be. Rashi's gonna Rashi's gonna go like not not even a halfway there, a third of the way there. You went even farther. That's wonderful. Okay, a lot of hands. Barry, Judy, Larry, Diane, Norm, Tova. Barry? No, I put my hand down. I, I forgot to put it down. Got it. Okay. Uh, G- uh, Judy? Okay. So, first of all, um, this is, as as all of them are, I want to thank everybody. The discussion is so enriching, making me think of all these things that never I never saw before. Uh, so then, three very brief things. Is this not a common construction in biblical Hebrew and he opened it, the door, and she saw it, the boy. Isn't that common? It's common enough that one doesn't have to midrashize it, and it's uncommon enough that one can midrashize it, right? So I know that's an unsatisfying answer, but no, it's uh, actually fine. <laughs> some of the stuff, some of the some of the commentaries on Rashi's commentary make that point that that you you can use that double direct object as an as a, a motivator for a draw. Let me just see if I can find one of them very quickly. Um yeah, Vedera Haktuvim, the it is the way of the of the verses. Lefamim sometimes lichfol to double. Ulafaresh et hadavar or to further further explicate an idea. Oh Haadam Shabavurona Seitapula to for, basically to double a direct object. Um even when the you already know who it is based on how it's written, Kamo, we have a verse from Jeremiah. I, I'm sure there are verses in Torah as well. Asherlo Yavdu Oto Nezar, who would not serve him Nezar. So you already know who the who is. Important here's a who. It's Nezar, but the verse sometimes doubles it. So it does happen, but it doesn't happen every time. So it's it's like fair game, but not obligatory, if that makes sense. So now the second thing, the Zakev Gadol on Vatomer then <coughs> can be read, according to our discussion, is that that's announcing a, a subsur- subversive act yeah. is about to be committed by the daughter. Yeah. She knows her dad's decree. Yeah. And then the third thing from what Vered um, showed us, the Hinein Na'ar Okay. Suddenly I have this image of what the rabbis are discussing. Um, what is that? Um, in, the, in the Talmud about when the Mikdash, the first one, is being destroyed, um, but that the gates of tears remain open. So Shemayim hears the tears, and there's something then that's very prescient about this child crying for far into the future. And a cry greater than his age suggests he should be able to be crying. Yeah. 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 I, I do think that the, 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 the here, that, that the crying is foreshadowing. Right. And, and as we'll see probably next week at this point, or actually in two weeks, Rashi will tell us in very few words, what he thinks this unnatural, Naar's cry is, but there, but there, that cry will eventually reach God. It's going to be a tsaka more than a bichia, 
right? And, and, when, and when that sa'aka, when that outcry reaches God, that's when God will have pity on the people, right? So like, just kind of be aware of that, of that micro and macro process. You have a Hebrew child crying and Bat Paro having pity on him. In chapter five or six of Shemot, you're going to have the people crying out from oppression from this, this woman's father, and then God hearing that cry and having pity. Right? So this is a this is a a, a microcosm or a, 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 a premonition of what's going to happen. That's going to be what ultimately takes this boy and puts him in the situation of going to save the, the people, save the people that he had the fortune of not having to share their sorrows because of this moment. Right. So there's a, there's there's a wonderful overlapping circularity there. Um, I'd like to at least get to the hands that are up. We might go a few minutes past. Uh, Larry, Diane, then Norm, then Tova, then Rick, and then Marshall, and then we'll close. So thanks to Marshall for reminding me about Alter, who doesn't only translate, but also gives commentary. So his commentary about the Tira Ehu Etayelid is, the Masoretic text has, she saw him, the child, but other versions show saw without the accusative masculine suffix. So there must be some manuscripts which have vitere etayelid or something like that without the who. Um, just throwing that out there that um, that's, that suggests something about Torah text. Right. And to go back to what Stevie said before, it's, it's actually the opposite way of responding it as, as Stevie said it. Or Stevie was saying that, that there may have been some manuscripts that had another verb. They're not apparently some manuscripts that didn't have the second direct object. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I will remind you that just a few verses ago, we had a, a, we had a somewhat of a version of this on the, on the, on the verse upon which Barry reminds us that there is illumination. But Tahar Aisha, the woman became pregnant, but Taylor Ben, she gave birth to a child. It's not, it's not as redundant, but she saw him that he was good. And that, that could have also happened with fewer words. Keep going. Um, and then he also comments about the issue of Boche. And what he says is, uh, he, he attributes this to, to Nahum Sarna, that this is the sole instance in the entire in the Bible in which the verb boche, uh, to weep, I assume he means Boche, is used for an infant, not an adult. Wow. Which goes to what you say. Now, I don't know, my Hebrew is not good enough, so Verid or you or anybody, is there another word for to cry for a baby's cry as opposed to boche, the tears an adult has of, of weeping. But if that's the case, that helps to resolve the na'ar issue and all the other commentaries. Or, or it, it, if it doesn't resolve it, it complicates it. It forces us to deal with um, na'ar, right? Because, because I, I did not know that, that boche, biblically, dafka does not mean a baby's weeping, but an adult's cry. Um, I have to think, I can't think offhand of another scene where a baby is crying and the verb is not boche, but I I will think about that. Um, Let's go to Norm, Tova, Rick, and then call it a day. We all are familiar that Moshe's older sister, Miriam, is nearby, prepared to get involved. We don't know where his older brother Aaron is, and I wonder if it might have been Aaron who is a nar, Boche, who is crying, um, if that's a possibility. That, 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 he's the one who's weeping, not Moshe. Uh, 
Right. Once you open up the possibility that Vatirehu et Hayeled and the Hine Narboche are not the same person, there are all sorts of possibilities as to who that could be. Right. And it's interesting that neither in the shot and nearly not in the Midrash is there any reference to Aaron in these scenes. Right. It's, it's the, in fact, it's one of the, it's one of the, the few scenes in the Torah and the rabbis pounce on this where the agency is all via the women and not the men in the family. Tova Rick. Um, yeah, this is building a little bit on what I said before, but um, looking at the Vatir Ehu et Hayeled, and it, at least in my translation, it sounds like in a number of others, it's not translated as she saw him, but as she saw it. I don't know if the nuance is the same in Hebrew, but it seems like the whole pasuk is a raising of consciousness. So she opens it and she sees it, a child, and then the experience of something weeping, right? Of a weeping that is very potent in some way, which moves her so from it to a child to the emotional impact of the weeping, and then to the comment that I made before, a recognition of this is the reality of that decree of, of, of what her father's done. So it's like the whole pasuk has this arc. Yeah, that's lovely. In, in Hebrew, it, it's, it's a more, it works better actually in English than Hebrew because- Yeah, Hebrew, that's what I was, I was wondering about that. It but. and masculine he are the same, yeah. right? Yeah. But it reminds me of the classic Rashi, which is on the classic piece of Midrash on the beginning of the Akedah. Kach et bincha et yechidcha asher ahavta et yitzchak, right? Yeah. It's a progression. Take, take what? Your son. Right. Which son? Your only son. Who? Uh, yitzchak, right? So the, the one that you love, Isaac. So it, it, it intensifies, right? Yeah. So I, I love the, the instinct here, right? It goes from it to a baby, to something that she can have compassion on. Wonderful. Okay, last comment, uh, Rick, and then maybe Rebecca Leonard. But I know we're over. <laughs> um, hi, I just wanted to um, raise the angel Midrash on, on why the boy was crying. Because um, um, why is he crying? So it was Rabbi Nehemia in uh, Exodus Rabbah. Um, he wrote that Gabriel came down and smote Moses so that he should cry, and then the princess would be filled with pity for him. Um, but I don't like that because I don't think angels hit people. I think he just clapped his hands and woke him up. But um, that's a midrash there. So most people. So there are. There's a super commentary on Rashi called the Gur Arya, written by the Maharal of Prague, who explains the very terse Rashi that we'll read next week as being inspired by that midrash. So r- r- remind us of that, Rick, when we get there. Okay, Rebecca Leonard, last comment. Are you there? I'm here, yes. Okay, so um, <clears throat> Ibn Ezra has a two-word explanation of what's going on here. He says, Hosif Er. It's just further explanation of what's going on. And it's exactly like in the Akedah story. You only need one verb, and they, can, they continue to explain what they're talking about. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.